are you a one-person marketing team? Or perhaps you're a marketer who is wearing a lot of hats and has several other roles within the company. Or perhaps you have no marketing team whatsoever. Well, in today's show, we are going to be breaking down how you can start building that marketing team of your dreams by outsourcing the work that you don't have the time for or you don't necessarily have the skill set for. Welcome into another episode of Cyberly. I am your host, Blythe Brumley. And on this show, we talk about B2B marketing, the attention economy, and how it all fits into the world of logistics. And so in today's episode, we're actually going to be breaking down building your one-person marketing team by outsourcing to the growing freelance market. Sales connoisseur Michael Nemi is going to be telling us where marketing and sales can actually become better aligned instead of becoming the enemies that they've sort of been known for in the past. And then Nick Dane. Angels is going to be breaking down how Freight Tech fits into your processes and sales goal. It's a jam-packed show, so we're just going to go ahead and jump right into our main topic, which is outsourcing your marketing and starting those beginning steps of how you can start growing that internal team to really start growing your business. And so in this study released by The Drum, it's a publication that I found out recently earlier this week that they had an exclusive LinkedIn study showing marketers are in demand, especially in digital. A few key stats from the study. On LinkedIn, some 381,000 marketing job openings were posted in the last year. And in the past six months alone, the site witnessed a 63% increase in marketing jobs. One in every two of the top marketing jobs listed on LinkedIn fall into the digital or media space. And in the past six months alone, LinkedIn has seen a 177% increase in the number of remote job postings for marketing roles. It's kind of a, a weird thing to see with a lot of these stats because especially during you know, economic uncertainty, especially over the last year, like we experienced with COVID, marketing is usually the first thing that's cut. But based on this study, it's proven that over the last six months, things have started to settle down a little bit more. Folks have realized the importance of digital media media and marketing, and they're starting to invest more in it, especially from a, a remote perspective. So with all of these companies looking to hire and the freelancing market continuing to grow, let's talk about how to outsource your marketing effectively. As a marketer within the company, you probably have a lot on your plate, but your main role should not only be creative problem solver, but also the project manager, aka the facilitator between your freelance team and the subject matter experts within the company. Essentially, you are acting as the conductor of the orchestra. And so how essentially do we start to get this job done of outsourcing our marketing effectively? Let's talk about some of the do's because there's a lot of them. Now, the first up on this list is that you want to have a clear process for what you want done and the steps that need to be done. Start thinking of the flow within your website that you want users to take online. You need to be thinking about this because if you spend a lot of time on advertising your content and you don't have the flow set up right on your website from the jump, then you're going to be wasting a lot of time and energy. So think about that ultimate goal that you want people to take on your site once they arrive to your site. Do you want them to fill out an application? Do you want them to set up a sales meeting? Do you want them to book a demo? All of these different things. Even fill out an application if you're recruiting drivers or employees on your website. Think about that ultimate end goal that you want users to take. And then we're going to start to reverse engineer how to get users to take that goal. And so once that flow is established, and then you want to define your processes within all of your marketing flow. So these roles can, can sort of 
look like writing a blog post. Uh, You want to also think about managing the content calendar, creating and sending emails, publishing to social media. So these are all different roles within your processes that once you start to figure out the flow of your site, reverse engineer the goals, and then you want to start to break down what those processes look like and then what roles need to be filled into each one of those processes. Because as a skill set, as a marketer, you're probably looking at, well, I can do one of these things really well, but I can't necessarily do these other things really well. So that's where you're really going to start thinking about building out what your frameworks look like from idea to creation to publishing or launching and distribution. Do you want to create content once a week, Uh, publishing a case study once a month? Use a flowchart software. There's plenty of them out there on that. You can just Google the the phrase flowchart software. What I like to do is I like to take a bunch of different post-it notes and I will take post-it notes and I will map out the flow and I will pin the post-it notes either to the floor of my office or on the wall. And that helps me visualize and change up the flow of, of what my processes look like. So determining the flow, determining your framework and your processes, all of these things are, are very essential in order to even think about starting to outsource your marketing because you cannot delegate and you cannot outsource any part of your marketing unless you have your goals and processes defined first. So even though if you edit these in the future, which you will, I do so about once every six months, uh, knowing that, knowing the goal that you want the end users to take and how you theorize it can happen are those first few steps that you want to take. Now, as far as like the fun part of when you become the conductor of the orchestra, now you want to find your freelancers who specialize in what you listed in your process flow. So you can find these freelancers on Upwork, on Fiverr, even LinkedIn in the very near future will have this ability for you to look for freelancers on their platform. There's no word yet on when that feature is actually going to be released on LinkedIn, but it is coming. Now for writing and copy, I don't see many companies doing this yet, but it's a gold mine. You need to hire freelance writers that have been impacted by other industries. So they've already been trained. They've probably already gone to college for this. Um, think of you know the, the sports industry, the local news industry. They've already been, tra- been trained in, in journalistic writing and in, in interviewing and in getting the stories out of people that can then be, uh, I, I guess, dismayed or or not dismayed, but displayed to uh, a broader audience. You want to think about it in that regard. And those are the people that have those chops, that have that skill set that you're looking for. So as the conductor of the orchestra, you can be building out these writers that have been negatively impacted in another industry and bring them into your company and hire them on a part-time basis. You're using those same skill sets and then you're acting as the liaison between those reporters, between those journalists and the subject matter experts within your company. So think of the executives, think of the safety department, even your customer service and sales teams. All of those different people will will apply when it comes to interviewing subject matter experts, which is key to developing that content strategy and developing messaging all across your digital media landscapes, whether it's your website or email marketing all of these different landscapes, they can help you craft that messaging just by interviewing people already within your company. And so think about that whenever you're you're building your freelance team. Do you know of any writers that have been laid off recently? Do you know it? Look in your local news site and, and see what writers are already working a beat. And chances are they're going to be willing to take up some freelancing gigs. So make those connections, 
or you can find them on Fiverr, Upwork, and LinkedIn very soon. Now, a sample flow of what this process could technically look like, you could do a three-part safety or a safety series. So think of it in three parts. You would coordinate a time slot between an executive and a safety director with your freelance writer. Then you can they conduct the interviews and write the interviews, maybe even film them or record them for a podcast, and then they submit them to you. You could proof those interviews or you hire a copy or a video editor that they take care of the editing process for you because not all of us are strong in the grammar department if you spent any time on social media lately. Um, so think of it in that way that they could proof that you could hire a copy editor, you can hire a video editor, even a podcast editor to take care of the editing for you. Once approved, then they resubmit back to you. You'll probably have to go through an executive team in order for that approval process to take place. And then you can publish it out to your channels. And you could even hire a social media freelancer that could publish this out for you. So that's sort of bringing it back to the process of what kind of content you want to create, how often you want to create it, and then filling in the gaps of the skill sets that you don't have. And that that way you can focus on the skill sets that you really do have and use the free the freelance pool that is growing and growing over the last year in order to start building your, your sort of powerhouse marketing team. Now, it, it's a lot of work that you're going to be organizing, but there are tools that will help you. It's tools that I have used in the past, um, that I use today, project management, manager tools. I use ClickUp personally. I've used Monday.com in the past and I love them. Asana, I've heard many great things about. Trello is another one um, that I've used. Uh, it, it, the only downside of Trello, I would say, is that you can't assign people that I know of in ClickUp and Monday and Asana. You can assign your freelancers so they get notified with the, through an email or through the platform that, hey, you've been assigned a new project and it's your turn to sort of take the reins from there. And then you can watch the whole flow, the whole process take place. It's sort of... It, 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 Taking a step back, the biggest takeaway here is that you have the benefits of using your marketing, using a marketing agency without the overhead. And you still get the value of using your subject matter experts within your company and to position your company better than if you were to say, you know, hire a writing mill that's going to pick a few keywords of SEO that you want to target and hope and pray that you rank for them six months from now. That just doesn't realistically work. In today's marketing world, you really want to use your subject matter experts within the company who are actively talking to customers, who are handling current customer issues, who are talking to prospects, um, even in the accounting part, accounting department, the finance department, you want to be having those regular meetings because your process will likely change after you have gone through these steps a few times. You'll be more efficient. You'll find better ways to manage it. And that is perfectly okay. Because you, you, there are some things that you got to keep in mind when it comes to defining this in, entire process is that it will change. Mine changes about once every six months. And so don't expect... Also, when you're hiring a marketing freelancer, do not expect them to know immediately of what your expectations are. Give them a few different assignments and get a good feel for what their skill set is before you decide that they're not a good fit. Unless they're just an absolutely dreadful writer or they just have just 
bombed on at their first assignment and there's no chance of recovery, then you, you there, it might be a situation where you have to say goodbye to that freelancer and move on to the, the next one that you had on your list. But don't expect a marketing freelancer to pick out you know the, the, the keywords and write a generic blog post. They need a plan from you and you need to be able to provide that structure to them, which brings us back to the processes and flows that you determine internally. So then that way you can outsource to, to people that have a, already a good fit for the skill set that you're looking for. You're going to have to go through a few fl- freelancers in order to figure it out, but don't give up after a few blog posts, like I said, or even at, uh, editing wise, you know, video, podcast, anything like that, any kind of content medium that you're trying to target, that you're trying to go after, give that freelancer an opportunity to get a good feel for your company first, know what style you like, and then that way they can evolve and get better. If they're not getting better, then that's, a, you know, it's, it's sort of a situation where you have to treat them like an employee, where if they're not getting better at their job, then you have probably have to part ways with them. Uh, but give them at least an opportunity to get better and to learn your company. So offer up a prelim period of working together. And if all goes well over time, you may be able to move them from a freelancer role to a part-time or even an in-house full-time role. And that's really how you start to scale your marketing department because usually companies, like I said earlier in the show, they only have one person handling marketing and they're doing a bunch of other different things or they have nobody handling marketing. So this is a slow growth process, but using freelancers, using the growing remote work workforce that, that's out there, then you can really start to build your, your team from a, a foundational level, setting that good foundation up first internally. And then you can start bringing in those freelancers that you have outsourced and you can start bringing them in. Maybe not working inside of the office because it's a remote world now. And likely a lot of these freelancers and remote workers don't want to come into your office, but at least you can give them the opportunity to become more of a a valued member of your team. And finally, and this is a big don't that's becoming a uh, an increasing problem because I would say that over the last couple of years, marketing has really evolved, especially the the, the marketing and sales relationship of how they 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 coexist in a, a cohesive environment. And I would say that don't work for a leadership team that doesn't value marketing. There are, in order to be a really good marketer, you have to be a creative problem solver. You have to be a facilitator. You have to constantly be in the know within your own company and you have to know what's driving revenue. So if you know all of these different things, then you can start to to build out that value added marketing plan that's going to take time and it's going to take an investment. I would say on average, anywhere from eight to 12 months is a good time frame from when you start a marketing plan in order to start seeing some initial results. Anywhere as, as early as I would say six months, but really anywhere from like eight to 12 months is when you're going to start seeing some initial uh, benefits from it, implementing a marketing plan. A study I talked about earlier at the beginning of the show just proves how in demand a lot of these different roles are becoming. So if you're working for a leadership team that doesn't believe in what you do, there's plenty of other companies out there that are hiring. So take advantage of the opportunities that you have right now. But if you don't have a leadership team that believes in marketing and that believes in what you're doing and is willing to invest in in your role and, and invest their time into waiting for those to come to fruition, go find another company to work for because there's plenty of them that are looking. So the reason 
I wanted to have our next guest on as a little bit of a segue, because as I'm talking about outsourcing your marketing and then talking about in bringing sales more into the process, the reason I wanted to have our next guest on is over the last year, we have seen some of those lines blur between sales and marketing. So let's go to the freight sales expert himself, Michael Nimi. He's an agency owner and VP of Supply Chain Solutions. Welcome in, Michael. What's up? <laughs> finally, I'm glad to finally have you on the show. And and I think for for most folks who who follow you on LinkedIn, or maybe they they don't follow you on LinkedIn, but hopefully will after this show. Wh- how did you get into the world of logistics? Sort of break down how you, how you got started in and what your current role is. Uh so yeah, I like most people, no one really goes unless you're like strictly going in for supply chain, but. Again, on the sales side, I don't think anybody really goes into college thinking, "Hey, I'm gonna, you know, get into shipping." Um, funny story, you know, I graduated, ended up working as a bar manager for like six months. Didn't really know what I wanted to do, um, and then got called by a recruiter, Chaz. Shout out to Chaz uh, to work for a company, Worldwide Express, back in what 2014, and you know, that's where it all started. Um, Built my career uh, at Worldwide Express, um, moved into leadership at Worldwide Express. I was there for about like four, four and a half years. Then kind of, you know, dipped my toe in a couple different companies. Kind of just got sick of, you know, having to, you know, again, I think there's, I want to, I want to point this out. I think there's value in, you know, working for big corporations, you learn a process and whatnot. But at some point, you know, I just said, Hey, I I don't want to really work for anybody else. Um, and which led me into, you know, global trans, um, Brian Coleman, again, shout out to Brian Coleman. Uh, he recruits like agents from global trans for global trans. And this dude was literally trying to get me to come over to global trans since I think 2016 and oh, wow. I didn't, move over. yeah. Right. So talk about persistence, never pushy. <laughs> there was a couple different times that that was still, even when I was at worldwide express, uh, yeah, I just moved into leadership. And again, never pushy was just kind of trying to fill me out what what I was looking for and just stayed persistent. So that kind of really always stuck out to me. It was like, hey, listen, if I'm going to go this route um, on top of, you know, amongst other things that Global Trans offers, I was like, you know, just something about that where it's like this person was, I wasn't just like another number to them. They were literally persistent in getting me to come over to Global Trans on the agency side for what, four, four years. So, so he now, put in the uh, work. What'd you say? I said, so, so he really, he put in the work because you, you, your, your common phrase that you say pretty often is real is rare. So oh, it, yeah. uh, would you say that that is where the, I guess, sort of the inspiration for that phrase came from is when you started on your agency path? Yeah, no, I, I, I've always, so it's funny is I, I was probably like the worst person to try to sell because like I get, we almost get to the final like end of like, okay, maybe he thought he was going to be like, okay, Nimi's going to come over now. And I'd be like, no, I'm just, I'm fine where I'm at right now. And I was like, you know, thinking back at it, it's like, damn, but he stayed persistent. He didn't burn the bridge. I mean, you, you, you hear me talk about, I'm, I'm, you know, a lot of agents I know that come over are really just focused on bringing their book of business or they're more transactional, whereas I have never sold transactional deals. So I was very, you know, um, interested in, you know, I was like, hey, put me in contact with your managed trans people. And this is back before I, this was three years before I even signed, right? So he was getting me in front of people at Global Trans that could, you know, potential, uh, again, from a managed transportation standpoint, 
So he was doing all the work. It, I don't know. He was just it, he's just a good dude and persistent. And that's someone again, put aside all the bells and whistles that Global Trans offers. That's just someone I trust, right? Like, regardless, I'm just like, okay, this guy, he's been this persistent. I I I, I trust him. I'm not just a number. So the, the, the real is rare probably came from him then, I would imagine, or the inspiration from it. But it's it's the sort of that work ethos, I think. No, real is rare has like always been something. I mean, I, I got a tattooed on me. It's always been, <laughs> I think it's like unapologetically yourself, right? And, it, mm-hmm. you know, we all say we're real, but to what extent, right? And I've always just, again, you know, unless you're like blatantly just like disrespectful, but like, I just always found it, you know, fascinating people, like whether I, even the people I don't necessarily like, but they're just themselves. I can appreciate that. Right. And you can, you you just can feel the vibe of someone that is literally unapologetically themselves. And again, it goes back to, even if I don't like that person, there's a lot of people that I probably wouldn't hang out with or even like that are just so real that I can appreciate that. And two, I just trust those people. Like if someone told me to F off and just was real though, it's like, I trust that person more than someone that just isn't as real. I mean, I know it sounds right. kind of kind of corny, but I mean, again, it, you could, if you know, you know, and I feel it's like, a- you know, most people can feel it out that, hey, this person's actually just hundred percent themselves. No, I, I I agree completely because I think that you can tell it, it, the word authenticity is thrown around all the time. But I think that yeah. that is really that, that that's what it draws back to is, are you authentic in what you're saying and what are you practicing, what you're preaching? And and can people trust you with the advice that that you're giving out? And sort of that that brings me to my next question, which historically speaking, marketing and sales, you know, you, you, I, in, in this conversation for, for perspective, I'm going to represent the marketing role. You're representing the sales role. They've had kind of a rocky relationship. What are some of the things that marketers like myself can do for sales that uh, that I would say are historically a waste of time? And then what can they do that they're not that they can help sales out even more? Yeah. So I mean, I know we kind of I give you a little bit more context on on my side of things from even like college, right? I like minored in marketing uh, and majored in public relations. So you know, PR was definitely you know very broad. We got a little taste of everything. I think market like I think from a sales standpoint, most salespeople have a huge ego and don't realize like our job to me, my job is easy, right? It's it's the other people that really keep the you know are the glue, right? Marketing, um, operations, accounting, credit, collections. So from a marketing standpoint, I think that where companies, I guess, fail is it's just if you look at like a company's page, right? Most companies' pages are so horrible. All they do is talk about culture. They don't really talk about anything about their target audience. Like, think about it. No one's like, you look at a company's page, it's so, it just, to me, it's so cookie cutter-ish, right? So it's like, that's where, from a, just a strictly a sales standpoint, I think you need to have, you need to be a mark. You need to market yourself. You need to market, you know, who you're going after as a target audience. And, you know, only tips I could give to, you know, strictly just someone that is marketing spend some both both sales and marketing people marketing me our sales meeting sales people spend time with the marketing department building out you know i don't know content that's going to target customers that you are your target audience right because no one's really i don't at least i don't see it from a company standpoint really targeting any type of 
challenges that you know their current target customers are having and that's an issue it's like everybody they just talk about company culture and i get they got to recruit people and that's that's great but there needs to be more content uh around what does your customers wants and needs what are those wants and needs and targeting those if that makes sense to you it, it does because I, in a previous role, I served as editor in chief of a of a magazine, and the most I got out of our sales meetings was actually sitting in on the meetings that they would have with customers and learning what they were trying to pitch to the customers and how we can make it work from an editorial standpoint. And so that applies to logistics as well. That every marketer should be sitting in with the sales team, listening to what those conversations yeah. are with prospects and customers, and what those conversations sound like because if you're not doing that, then you don't have any idea what to put on your website, in your email, on social. You have no idea. You're just sort of flying blind. So I think why that things that are is like where... so sorry, but that's why things are so like cookie cutter. It's like you look exactly. on websites it's straight up. It's like, cool, we do it all. Like, it's just I mean, it's pathetic. I mean, it, it, <laughs> I mean, it, it really, I mean, straight up. It's like, OK, what what I, I it's almost like you don't even you don't companies don't even know, like, who their target audience is, right? And if that's the case, I mean, here, listen, I'm not gonna, I'm not sitting here trying to reinvent the wheel for, you know, these large organizations or even say anything bad about it. But I think this, if you are in sales, you're not gonna reinvent the wheel at, and you work for a large company or even any company, you're not probably not gonna reinvent the wheel for your entire marketing, right? But I would say is what you can do is market yourself and get close with whoever you have. If your company has like marketing uh, managers or even just marketing people, right? Get close with them. Start bringing that, like you said, start bringing them on your meetings. Because guess what? Most, if you're a good marketer, they're creative, right? So salespeople, I would be picking the brains of, you know, these marketers and be like, hey, listen, this is what I'm going for. How do we make this sound kind of like catchy, right? And, and then that's how you work together. And I think it just only is going to, grow yourself or grow your 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 business in general would would you say that that is maybe one of the bigger things that have has changed over the last year is that salespeople need to start branding themselves uh, would you say that's that's a symptom of covid or was that happening maybe before covid happened i mean covid definitely i mean you, you had to right i mean I, nobody even it's funny it's like nobody even heard of like i mean people knew logistics but it's like let's face it covid i feel like the biggest industry that like started being talked about is, would you agree is is logistics right so it definitely covid played a part in you know having people start marketing themselves but even to this day it's still so small like i just don't understand it right it's like you look at certain people and it's like even the people i've used to work with like for instance i was bred into a company great company but it was like door to door sales or business to business sales and they still have that mentality of like Hey, listen, that's 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 going to be our bread and butter. And I am 100% ab about that. But they're not building year later. They haven't built anything from a brand standpoint. And I guarantee they're hurting from it. Right. So, you know, the people that capitalized it, capitalized on, you know, branding themselves on, during COVID. Awesome. But the people that didn't are really hurting. But yeah, I mean, COVID definitely. What else are you going to do? Right. It's like at, at some point you, you, you couldn't do anything but market yourself. Right. And I think a lot of companies were were scared to let their employees sort of market themselves. But then when they're not working in the office each day, they're working remotely. I think it made it a lot easier for for those those types of people that are comfortable getting out into the world and, and promoting themselves to have a little bit more access.
access to it. But let's let, let's let's switch gears a little bit because let's say you're you're fresh on this out of college. Quick? Can we can we hit on this real quick? Sorry. Yeah, please. <laughs> you said something about like it's it's another prime example of why corporations again. I'm not trying to switch the wheel, but it's like let people be who they are, who they are, right? People, it's so like, it's something so simple, but think about it. I was so watered down. And again, I am, I, this is not me talking like bad about working for, you know, directly for a corporation, which it there's a ton of value in it, but mm -hmm. it was so, I was so watered down. I mean, even in 2016, I tried to be posted on LinkedIn and I would get like texts from like a manager that says, Hey, you got to take that down or you got to do this. And it's like, that is wow. an issue that like, it, that is an issue. You are like, you're not letting someone like be themselves. Even to this day, I, I have, I have friends that are, you know, works, work as an agent or franchise owners for other companies that are still like told, Hey, you can't do this. And it's just like, wow. that is a bad, that is, that is a huge issue. It's like, you, you can't truly, I think it's just, it's. I think they operate at a they, they, I think the, the companies operate out of fear and that they think that if this employee posts too much, then they're going to get too big and then they're just going to leave us. But they're probably studies show that most millennials only stay at a job for two years anyway. So they're going to leave you regardless. So why don't you just capitalize on their branding well, then, and their attendant branding? Have some parameters, but let them be creative themselves. Most people in the professional world aren't going to be like, I'm pretty absurd, right? Like at some for some <laughs> things, right? And I think people just, you, at the end of the day, people are going to do what they want to do and you got to just trust, right? And that's the biggest thing is it's like, if you don't, if you're already worried, I mean, there's that quote, it's like, you know, uh, treat people right so they don't leave or whatever. But it's like, if you are already not trusting your employees, uh, you know, to, to, to have a mind, have a mind of their own and, you know, represent your company and you can't, you don't believe that they can do that then what's that say about your own hiring process, right? It's like, dude, I mean, at the end of the day, if you can't do that, you got a, you got way bigger issues than... Right. Than <laughs> you, have to, you have to look a little bit internally for, for your processes. And, and I think another one of those notes uh, that there's a lot of frustration, especially from, from folks that have switched gears. I know a lot of people that were in the restaurant industry switch gears to working in logistics. And the first thing that they, that happens to them is they sit them at a desk at a big three PL, or maybe not, maybe even a midsize three PL, they sit them at a desk and they throw them a list of cold leads, uh, in order to work. And that's their introduction to the world of brokering and uh, brokering logistics and brokering freight. So if you were one of those people, what would be the first step that you would do? Would you work those cold leads or would you just start working and carving out your own path? I mean, you always have cold leads, right? But it's like, again, I was very fortunate enough to work with a company that, you know, I talk about it all the time. It's like, you know, I feel like a black swan. There's very few people that are just only have sold strategically, strategic accounts, right? All in accounts. So it's like, we were taught, you know, how the supply chain impacts businesses, right? How we were, how to go to cold call, right? And people say cold calling, I'm more or less figured out, okay, hey, the supply chain impacts these departments. I'm going to go just gather information and pull out pain points and then go set a meeting with, you know, the, the, the owner of the company, right? Whereas other companies, like you just said, they get this, they get these cold or they get these companies. And again, I was walking through industrial parks. I had a territory. So they were still companies. It was like basically getting a list. But I also had a, a roadmap to, to, to know what to do, how to qualify, uh, you know, my target customers that I wanted to go after. Whereas 
99% of people in the, again, that's me just saying 99%, but a lot of people in this company or in this industry call companies and just say, Hey, do you ship? Let me get on a list. Let me get on the list. And I would listen, I would never go to that. Like, I mean, knowing, even knowing, even if I didn't know what I know now, it just doesn't seem like scalable, right? It's like, that's why there's so much turnover, right? That's why, again, people like me take business from people like that or companies like that, that just literally do that, right? Everybody ships. No one have, you don't even have a target audience. So <laughs> I'd be careful on who you go work for knowing what, pick your boss, right? I say your first, if, if you're right out of college and your first, uh, it's your first gig money. Yes. You need to survive, but I wouldn't so much worry about the money. I'd be worried about like wh who you're reporting to. What have they done? What have other reps said about them? How many reps have they scaled in their career? Um, and because that's the person you're going to learn from the most, right? In the beginning. And I would, I would value that versus the company you work for um, and the bells and whistles that the company offers. I would just strictly focus on what is, who's the person you're going to report to. Uh, super smart insight. And, and there was another piece of advice that, that I heard you mention in another show that one of your sort of cold calling tactics is to reach out to the accounting side of mm -hmm. the business that you're targeting because you want to find out the pain points that they are going through. What are two to three, I guess, accounting insights that would make someone in sales better at their job? I mean, accounting is everything. Finance is everything. Like, I don't even have to call logistics or... I don't want to like, let's be honest, I don't really want to call shipping, right? For the mere fact of 99% of the industry is literally blowing them up. They don't want to talk to me. They're going to just think again, click, you know? So when I think about big picture and, you know, accounting finance, that's impacting the company and supply chain plays a big role in that. Right. So again, you can get all the information you need from accounting. Hey, listen, you just switch your brain set, right? Or your mindset set of thinking shipments. You say, Hey, do you, I always would say is like, Hey, do you handle, you know, the, uh, paying the invoices of your transportation? Yes. Okay. What's your process? Like when you allocate transportation costs or, or how do you, you know, how do you get bills? Oh, we get bills coming in left and right. Some from, you know, snail mail, some coming in electronically, some consolidated. It's a pain in the butt. I spend hours, hours a week, just having to, you know, do a checks and balances on what we were quoted versus what we were billed. Okay. Ding, ding, ding. You're probably losing a lot of money. That's a lot of time spent doing tedious work when I can just, again, one-stop shop it, consolidate your invoices and break it down to how you want to see um, your invoices, right? Do you, do, you, do you allocate by location? Do you allocate by you know GL codes? I can already have that consolidated on a weekly basis for you. That's a huge value add, right? That's just like from a process standpoint. Hmm. You talk about accounting, it's like, okay, hey, most companies, right? Take this for example. Most companies don't even properly allocate their transportation costs into their own pricing model, right? So you'll go into a company, or I'll call into a accounting and say, "Hey, listen, um, you know, I know you guys are, you know, going into X, Y, Z uh, big box retailers. Um, when you guys are, you know, pricing out your product, are you guys? How do you guys like um, price out? You know, allocate transportation costs in, into your price?" Well, we just tack on a twelve percent of uh twelve percent of the sale. Well, how did you get to that twelve percent? Well, we just guessed. Okay, well, nine times out of ten, that twelve percent is really eighteen percent, and they're eating they're eating uh, a ton of costs that they don't even need to eat, um, and they could have fixed 
just by simply doing a cost to serve analysis. And that's something that I've always just thought about in my head, right? Forget the rates. Let's 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 focus on, you know, these kind of processes such as building out a cost to serve analysis and properly allocating our transportation costs into our pricing model so that not only do we just drive out, you know, transportation costs, we also increase profitability. Hmm. Really good insight. And then you're bringing, you're coming to an executive with that perspective of this is, you know, hard data that you're working with instead of just throwing something against the wall and hoping that it sticks. So in, in, instead, you're offering real value from the jump. So that gives you sort of a leg up in that Think next level that. conversation. I mean, honestly, if, if you, supply chain, and, and I get so frustrated, but like the supply chain transportation, listen, price matters and rates will always have some type of play in it. But I think we just, everybody in this industry, you know, needs to change their mindset. And I think anybody that with lo- that, you know, has ran a business, any executive or anybody with, you know, that's logical would, would, would agree that, you know, knowing your cost to serve is crucial before, before you even talk about rates, right? It's like, what are like, yeah, you got great rates, but it's like, does it matter? Like if you're not properly allocating your transportation costs or you don't know your cost to serve per, you know, customer location, it really doesn't matter. I'd rather have more ammo uh, for my customer where it's like, okay, here's your cost to serve. Now, when you go into these Walmart DCs, you have a better understanding. And again, nothing's going to be set set in stone, but hypothetically, you know what it's going to cost you with transportation going into all these different locations to Walmart and all the... Uh, to Walmart. And now you could start strategically going in and negotiating your pricing, um, your pricing with Walmart, right, which is only going to benefit you. And then, then we could look at, okay, how do we how do we negotiate specifically, you know, uh, transportation rates based upon the data we have from the cost of service analysis? Does that make, does that make sense to you? It's like having a program like a, like you wouldn't just start again, like, like a workout program, right? Hmm. Want to know, you're not just going to start squatting 200 pounds. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, oh, it's like my body, I can maybe I can eat more calories than your body. But you just have to have some type of roadmap. And nobody really has a roadmap. And they're so strictly focused on really rates, like it's, it's, it's honestly only rates. And that's the biggest thing why I think also executives don't really pay attention. Or, you know, when I call into them, is they think they they don't want to have a shipping conversation, they want to have a business conversation. And finance and accounting is so crucial to that. I love it. Really, really great insight. Michael, where can people find more of your, your sales gyms? Where can people find more of your work? Just uh, LinkedIn. I, I post a lot. Um, I'm building out a YouTube thing. I got some things in the works. Um, I got videos on YouTube um, that I probably haven't even posted on LinkedIn. Um, YouTube is Midwest Mike. Um, so yeah, find me on there. If you want to you want to know me more personally? I don't. I haven't posted in a while since this whole COVID thing. But you can follow me on Instagram, Midwest Mike eighty seven. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm mostly active on on uh, LinkedIn. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Wish we had more time to sort of dive into the the meat and potatoes more of the conversation. But appreciate your time today, and I encourage everyone to give you a follow because it's really great stuff, especially the marketers out there. Seriously, love you. Thank. <laughs> thank you so much. 
All right. Well, we talked about a lot of sales and marketing so far in this show. So let's keep it going. But this time we're going to actually get the tech angle in mind. So let's welcome in Nick Dangles. He is the co-founder of Kinetic. Welcome in, Nick. And and let's sort of go through the same thing. How did you get into the world of logistics? Hey, first of all, you didn't tell me I was following up Nimi. This is a tough (laughs) act to follow, right? Like he spent probably half an hour on one of my, my ideas the other day. I love Mike. <laughs> we might as well just shut it down right now, though. <laughs> he just brings the truth to the table. And I probably had six more questions that I wanted to ask, but this is live TV. So here we are. Um, we're we're yeah, moving on yeah, to the does. tech angle of the that. show. So you know, we're, you're, you're going to bring value, too. So let, let, let's give, give the people a little bit of a, a background on, on your career in the world of logistics, as I'm sure it's, it's non-conventional, as, as most of us are find ourselves in. Yeah, so background on my background here, I so I've been in logistics for 10 years, um, all in brokerage. And prior to that, God, I actually I used to be an attorney in my 20s. And God, it's it's a story probably best told over a couple of beers sometime why I'm not an attorney anymore. But <laughs> like suffice to say, it wasn't a good fit for me. I tried to get into sales, but I ran into the problem of being both underqualified and overqualified, right? Nobody wants to hire a 28-year-old former attorney for their entry-level sales job because they're going to bail in six months. So I ended up selling office supplies door-to-door for Quill, which was just a nightmare. But I learned a lot. (laughs) Super humbling experience. Yeah, super (laughs) humbling experience. And from there, I kind of fell into logistics and just had a great time doing it. Got caught up by the instant gratification, the fast pace of it. And then as I kind of got more experienced in the industry, I saw how much there really was to logistics and it just hooked me in. That, like, that's that's how I got into it. That's why I'm still doing it. That's why we're doing what we're doing now. And, and speaking of what you're doing now, you're co-founder of Kinetic and you help companies, correct me if I'm wrong, you help companies sort of in the, in, in the tech space enter into the freight market when they kind of don't really have a clue of how to enter in the freight market. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. Yeah. So like our little pitch is that we work with freight tech companies and help them get their products to market more quickly and better adoption. And like more specifically, we work with them on things like sales and marketing and customer success. And and on your website, it said you, you help companies with their go-to-market strategy. Uh, what essentially is all involved in a go-to-market strategy? And can only new companies take advantage of that? No. So, I mean, ultimately your go-to-market is just your your plan for launching your product or service into the market. And it encompasses a lot of things, right? It's what problem does your product solve? Who's your target audience? What's your message to that audience? Um, What's your sales and marketing strategy? Anything like that kind of falls into your go-to-market strategy. And uh, to answer the second part of your question, no, it's not just for, for companies that are just starting out. Like established companies do the same thing. If you have a... I don't know if you have a new product line, you're going to have come up with a new go-to-market for that product line. If you are trying to enter into a new industry, like if you're very prevalent in uh, food and beverage, you're trying to get into logistics, you might have a different go-to-market for that. So it's, it's really applicable to a lot of different companies at a lot of different stages of growth, though it's, it's most common probably the smaller startups. And and what are where are some of the areas that they're getting wrong when when or, or maybe some of the things that are are eye catching to you before they go to market? You know, I would say two things kind of jump out to me the most in that. One is understanding your audience 
and two is understanding your messaging. And I'll go into each one of these a little bit. When I talk about understanding your audience, I mean, when you talk about logistics, you a lot of times you hear about this multi-trillion dollar industry, right? With all this opportunity. And that's true. You know, it's true. And it sounds great to investors when they see this like total addressable market in the trillions. But like realistically, what's your individual market for your software? Is it that trillion dollar market? Probably not. You know, very likely we run across companies that like they're a software that specifically targets brokers, say. Well, like that's not nearly the same size. And you probably don't even target all brokers. More than likely, you target a specific subset of brokers because once you hit a certain revenue size, you're probably building your own technology. If you're too small, like you don't realistically need certain types of tech. So mm-hmm. like, your actual audience is somewhere in the middle. You got to figure out like what that revenue range is. And you got to figure out even, even smaller minutia, like is it a certain type of freight mix that we cater to? You know, if a broker has mostly contractual freight, is that a better fit for us versus if they um, have mostly transactional freight? I mean, it plays a big a big part in what technology they need. And if you don't know this kind of stuff, you're either selling to the wrong people or you're selling to the right people, but the wrong way. And that's mm-hmm. a big problem for a lot of freight tech companies. And, and when you... No, no, you, it, that's great because you actually brought up uh, a, a part of the next question that I wanted to ask because in the pre-show document that that we ran through, you mentioned something that was really interesting to me and you said service isn't enough for brokers to rely on anymore. They need to adopt some technology to stay competitive. So flipping the script a little bit from the freight tech companies that are entering the space, what about the brokers mm-hmm. that are entering the space? If, if for a new company, what are some of the must-have technologies that, that brokers need to invest in? You know, it's a tough question and... Like, I don't want to give you some generic, it depends answer, but I'm kind of going to because <laughs> I know, um, but it's, it's dependent on a lot of different things, you know, Sure. what are your growth plans? What's your cash flow look like? How well funded are you? What is your freight mix? Where do you see yourself in five years? All hmm. of those things. I mean, if you're just a guy starting up a brokerage on his own in his garage, your needs are going to be much different from some venture backed, uh, brokerage with huge scaling plans in the next several years. Um, if I were to give kind of just a cookie cutter answer to that though, I like you definitely need a TMS Like you're going to, you're going to struggle surviving without some sort of a TMS. Um, I'm big on capacity management tools. I think those can be extremely helpful for brokerages of any size. Digital tracking is a big one. You know, it's becoming, if it's not already, it's becoming a contractual requirement for any enterprise shipper you're going to come across. Like if you don't mm-hmm. have digital tracking, you're, like people just aren't going to work with you uh, in the near future here. And then accounting and back office. I mean, Nimi actually touched on this a lot. He, he talks a lot about how important it is. And it's he, he's right. You know, it's not the sexiest area of freight tech by any means, but there's a ton of opportunity to save cost in the back office. And there are a lot of companies doing some really interesting stuff there. Hmm. Well, uh, give us a few of the, the companies that are doing some interesting things on the accounting side, since it's relevant to this one. Yeah. So on the accounting side, um, Melio payments, I think is an interesting one. Um, when you think it, it helps with cash flow, it's not a factoring company, but you can help. It helps by allowing you to pay some of your vendors by credit card, um, even where they don't accept credit card payments, which is huge mm-hmm. to get that extra 30 days of float for some of these brokers. Like cash flow is one of the main reasons that like, early brokers go out go out of business. 
And then there's other things like like Hub Train's a big one, Triumph Pay, anything on that side of things is definitely worth like, worth taking a look at. Now, now on as coming from the executive side of things, I, I think that there's always been an issue where executives they they find that shiny new piece of software and they just want to initiate it and just buy it immediately before they even consult with their team. But what should a company do before that purchase is made to make sure it's a good fit within their processes? So to make sure technology can be a good fit for you, I would say you kind of have to go through the exercise of figuring out what your specific problems are, not just what people are telling you to buy. You know, there's there's a lot of technology out there that they run into the exact same problem you mentioned. You know, it it sits in their office and it's more just like tech decoration than anything else. Mm-hmm. And they just, they point to it for their customer and say, Hey, check this out. Look what we've got. It's, it's there at least. Right. But like to get value out of it, try to figure out what your actual problems are and what technology you need or that could be used to fix those problems. And it's not just like, it's not just C-suite problems. It's seat level users. What's Billy mm-hmm. in the corner struggling with every day. How can you help him out and get some sort of an impact for that guy? No, I love that. Going to the the employees that are in the trenches and getting the perspective from them versus the executive team that maybe doesn't have that hands-on approach as much as they used to. What is uh what what's some technology that's entered the freight space that has you really excited outside of the accounting solutions? But are there any other tools out there that that has you really excited for the future? Kat, you know there's so much stuff out there. Um, I'll try to narrow it down a little bit. I'm really excited about what I'd call workflow automation, like HubTep and Tech and Tabby, that what they've got going on there. There are so many, so many manual processes that are just like repetitively click this button, then click, click this button, then click this button, that anything you can do to automate that stuff is really valuable and saves a ton of time. I'm also really excited about what's going on with dynamic pricing nowadays. Um, there's so much data available for people and pricing is such a hot topic that to think that we're still relying on data that's like two weeks old and trying to figure out based on that what we're going to pay today. Like mm-hmm. it, it, it's mind boggling sometimes when there are better solutions out there uh, like green screens and sonar that are doing some really interesting stuff with pricing. Now, bringing it back to Kinetic, your your company, especially with, with, with sales, you, you focus a lot in that area. How are you approaching the modern sales process in, in, in sort of the, the media landscape that we find ourselves in? You know, I approach it, um, we're heavily into social selling, you know, like providing valuable content for people rather than just pitching them on yourselves, right? Like you'll see You'll see us doing webinars and you'll see me doing LinkedIn content. And we suggest the same thing for our customers, right? You don't just need to go out into the world and shout your name to everybody. You need to provide content that actually makes sense to them that they get some sort of value out of. Are there any, I guess, what what are the most important platforms that you guys are focusing on uh, right now and in the near future? Is it like uh, social media? Is it maybe email? You mentioned webinars. Um, are there any other maybe like in-person events now that things are starting to open back up? Where are you guys going to be planning to focus your efforts? Yeah, you know, like transportation can be a little bit weird when it comes to marketing because like what I would consider traditional marketing methods don't like often don't work as effectively because <laughs> it's like, like it's so word of mouth and so based on who you know that like people aren't really going to whatever like magazine you're reading and looking at an ad for your company, 
right? It's more like they're looking at like whoever their buddy recommended or they're like watching webinars or they're on LinkedIn and Facebook. They're reading articles um, and they're just listening to people whose opinions they value. Like the, I hate to use the word influencers, but like the influencers out there. So anything you can do to leverage that kind of stuff, I think there's a huge amount of value in that for companies. Now, we talked early on in the show about how marketing can help the sales team more effectively. In your experience, where does marketing at most freight companies fall short? You know, I'll I'll spin that a little bit. So instead of freight companies, I'll talk about the freight tech companies. Hmm. And so for this, it's it's oftentimes the messaging itself. You know, the messaging itself doesn't it doesn't relate enough to the day-to-day of the freight companies. You know, oftentimes the messaging, it focuses on what's important to the freight tech company. And what's important to the freight tech company versus the freight company are two very different things. You know, the, the freight tech company is often very excited about their technology and their integrations and all sorts of other buzzwords. And like, I don't want to diminish that because they are very important. But what's important for the day-to-day of a guy running a freight company is very different. And you have to make sure that your messaging actually is relatable to that person because that's who you're selling to, right? And speaking of that, we talked earlier about, you know, the new brokerages that that are coming into the scene and the technology that they need to be investing in. What about some of the legacy companies? Are you seeing any, uh, they're usually or historically the ones to grasp onto technology. They're the ones that have the budget, right? So Mm -hmm. are there any technology, are there any, I guess, tech in the space of the legacy companies that you sort of see as as going away that they need to invest more into a, a new frame of thinking? You know, it, it's so dependent on the individual company. I mean, like you got some of your larger players who are like very advanced when it comes to technology. They've been building their own proprietary tech for years and what they have is amazing. Um, but like some of the smaller ones, like small to mid-sized ones, I, again, it kind of boils down to figuring out what works best for you. I would say that the biggest, like my biggest takeaway is just like do something, you know, (laughs) like the only wrong, the only wrong answer is going through that exercise, figuring out what your problems are and thinking, well, you know, we've been doing this for the past 20 years and it seems to be working. So let's just keep doing this for the next 20 and see what happens. Well, that's not going to work for you. You know, like if that's your response, like the next 20 years aren't going to go well. If no matter what you do, just do something. And it'll be Are there any uh, of the larger companies? I mean, JB Hunt comes to mind for me that that's a legacy company that's consistently mm-hmm. evolving and, and adapting new com- or ad- adapting new technologies and just ways of thinking. Are there any other companies out there, legacy wise, that you think are doing a good job of transitioning their 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 teams into the modern workforce? You know, I I think they're all they're all taking steps to varying degree, right? Like. There are amazing things going on in a lot of this company. Like US Express and Variant is doing some really cool stuff out there. I mean, you can probably rattle off the top 10 brokers and they all have different ways that they're trying to embrace technology. And it's great to see. I think they're I think they're the ones kind of leading the uh, um, the more widespread adoption of technology. Where do you see the, I guess, the tech space evolving over the next few years? And and how can companies sort of capitalize on that without overwhelming their users or their employees, I should say? Yeah, without without overwhelming your users is is important, you know, and that kind of that kind of goes to the customer success piece of all of this. Mm-hmm. And that's something that a lot of freight tech companies do struggle with sometimes. 
because a, a lot of the time you bring some new technology on board and like for whatever reason, it doesn't get used. And oftentimes it's not the fault of the technology itself. It's more related to how it was introduced and what the training was, you know? So instead of thinking just like, oh, like this technology just isn't working for me, like think about how it was actually presented to your people. Was it presented in terms of here's your new platform, like click these buttons, this is how it works, just do this? Or was it really described to them in terms of this is why you need to use it? This is hmm. the benefit that you're going to get from this tool, and it's going to drive a lot more adoption from your users, and it's going to overwhelm them less because they're going to understand why they need to use it. Yeah, because then you can kind of just break down of how it fits into their day versus just being an additional thing that they have to check or that they have to do each day. So I think you really hit on that earlier is to to figure out how the figure out the problems first. Go to those, I don't want to say low level, but entry level is probably the better phrase to use. Go to those entry level employees first, figure out what their 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 stop gaps are in their work day, and then figuring out the software that fits into those stop gaps instead of just trying to force something that may not work and may be a big waste of money. All right, Nick, yeah. this is really, really insightful. Where can folks find more of your work in Kinetic? Yeah, so feel free to check me out on LinkedIn. I'm there a lot. And if you want to reach out to me directly, my email is nick at poweredbykinetic.com. Perfect. Thank you so much. It was great insight. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on. Now, that was a really great. I, th- I told you earlier, we had a jam-packed show. We went headfirst diving into how marketing and sales and technology can all sort of form this greater cohesive vibe with each other. And, and a few takeaways that really stood out to me, especially with our chats with Nick and also with Michael, is that especially from the sales side, on the sales side of things is really having that deep understanding of where the costs are coming from. So connecting with your accounting department, connecting with your finance team. And that's really great insight for all of the marketers out there too. Understanding where those pain points are coming from. Are there any additional charges that your customers are, are going through that they might need to know about ahead of time? That might be great. Fit, that might be a great fit for an FAQ page on your website, or really trying to get ahead of that messaging, and so that the sales team is aware of those different, you know, charges that that may end up on a customer's bill, so they're not blindsided by it, so they can effectively communicate that information to them, and then bringing it full circle with, with having those regular conversations with your entry level employees, and then also within the rest of the employees within the organization, especially the leaders of different departments, whether it's the the customer service team, the tracking team, uh, going off the accounting team again, meeting with those different departments regularly from a marketing perspective is so very, very important because then you can really understand what is driving business, what's driving the ship of the entire company, what's driving revenue. And then the copy just essentially writes itself. And you're going to use that copy. You're going to use that messaging across all of your different platforms, whether it's your website, your email, your social media, all of that good stuff. It's really going to apply. And a little added tip before we close out for the show, start a lingo library document. I do this for each one of my clients and I do it for myself too. I have a Google document where each time I have these conversations, I'm writing that link. I'm writing in that lingo library of the exact phrases that people use whenever they're talking to me about their problems, because then I'm going to use that exact language on across all of my marketing. So just a little added tip, start a lingo library document. It's really super valuable. But until next week, I am Blythe Brumley, owner of digitaldispatch.io, a freight and marketing company. And I will see you right here next week on on this episode of Cyberly. (laughs) 